If you'd turn in the back of the hymnal to page 876, we'll consider our catechism lesson initially uh, today. We're in the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, three sections, uh, uh, or the outline of the Heidelberg Catechism, sin, salvation, service, guilt, uh, uh, grace, and gratitude, misery, deliverance, gratitude, however you might have memorized it. We continually hold before you that though this is a human document written by uh, Ursinus uh, and Olivianus uh, hundreds of years ago, it is a time-tested document. It has proven itself uh, over the course of time, um, proven itself according to the touchstone and the the standard of sacred scripture uh, to be true and a faithful reflection of what's taught in the Bible, even as it follows the outline of the book of Romans. We're up to uh, Lord's Day 9 as we begin to go through the various statements of the Apostles' Creed, which we summarized as uh, what what true faith consists of, that is, everything that God has taught us in his word, which in summary is taught in the Apostles' Creed, which we just recited. And specifically today, we're looking at that first statement we recited, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And uh, question uh, 26 asks, and I would ask you to respond with the answer, what do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? That the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and everything in them, who still upholds and rules them by his eternal counsel, Well, that's quite a mouthful, um, but we're going to pick it apart and examine it in some detail uh, this morning that we might uh, personally uh, benefit from it. So, uh, in your Bibles, uh, if you care to, please open to Ephesians chapter 1, which we're going to be looking at and scrutinizing somewhat closely with respect to the truths that are taught in this first uh, phrase, uh, sentence of the Apostles' Creed. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 for the benefit of the context. So, hear what follows for what it is, in its entirety, the Word of God. Remember what we noted last week, that the preached Word of God is the Word of God. So, not just uh, reading, but preaching. So, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus... Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Three points uh, this morning on, O oh, my Father, almighty comforter. First of all, the reality uh, of this. Secondly, the reasons. And thirdly, the responses. So if you were paying attention as we went through the Heidelberg Catechism, very importantly, uh, I want to highlight for you that the catechism here, uh, as is always the case, is not interested in a theological definition of creation or providence. All right? Uh, the catechism, in, in its inimitable style, is personal, practical, and pastoral. And the theme of comfort, which is stated in question and answer one of the Heidelberg Catechism, what is your only comfort in life and in death, is not left in question and answer one. But rather, it is the theme which is woven through the, uh, the, the entirety, the fabric of the Heidelberg Catechism. And when we come to this question at the beginning of the Apostles' Creed, it is the same thing. The theme is comfort, even if it is not explicitly stated. This teaching is intended to provide a comfort to you as the people of God. And comfort, as I had to point out to somebody uh, this week, comes from the Latin uh, terms comforte, all right? And if you don't know Latin, it's very simple. It's with strength. So when the catechism talks about comfort, it's not talking about making your life easier. It's not talking about making your life more comfortable. Uh, Rather, it's talking about what is it that provides you strength? What is it that provides you fortitude? What is it that steals your nerve and provides a backbone in the face of a fallen world? And your only comfort in life and in death is that you are not your own but belong body and soul and life and in death to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has fully paid for all your sins and set you free from the tyranny of the devil. And when we come to this first statement of the Apostles' Creed, that theme of comfort is there as well. The Catechism is not interested in the definition of creation and providence, but a personal pastoral aspect of who God is. We have here uh, in the Catechism the language of faith, trust, confidence and assurance and if you were paying attention last week those are the ingredients of true faith that we considered uh, together last week Uh, and they are the ingredients of your only comfort all right the description of true faith is now applied to the first article of the apostles creed and notice uh, if if you will the focus all right that Uh, The eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and everything in them, who still upholds and rules them, etc., etc., right, Uh, is my God and Father for the sake of Christ his Son. Personal, right, pastoral emphasis. That's the comfort, is that this almighty God who created all things out of nothing is my God. That personal pronoun emphasis, very important. All right? Very important. All right? <clears throat> the author of the Catechism, Zacharias Ursinus, said, and I quote, To believe in God the Father is to believe, one, that he is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity, but secondly, that he is a Father to me for Christ's sake. Now, This is a teaching of the Bible that's, if I could just be somewhat candid with you, is particularly important to me. I was raised by a single mother, and I had no earthly father. And I remember when I was converted and Christians began talking about God as father, 
it fell into a category vacuum because does not compute, does not compute, does not compute, because I had no earthly father by which to conceive of a heavenly father. But the more and more I read the Bible and the more and more I came to understand that God was my father because of Jesus Christ, my father in heaven, all right, that became precious to me, became very meaningful and significant to me that I had a father, a father in heaven who has loved me with an eternal love, all because of Jesus Christ, all right? So this personal dimension, very important as we start here, all right? So the reality of this is taught in the scriptures in verses 4 and 5. Talking about the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, even as he, that is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, all right? That we should be holy and blameless before him. This is what uh, is referred to as the doctrine or the teaching of adoption, all right? Adoption, and it's central, all right? We're going to come upon it again in question and answer 33 in the Heidelberg Catechism. Why is he, Jesus, called God's only begotten son when we also are God's children? The doctrine of adoption taught there as well. But here in these opening verses of Ephesians, all right, we see that the Father chooses a people from before the foundation of the world, that the Son redeems or saves, comes and dies on the cross to purchase them with his own blood, and that the Holy Spirit is God's seal. So as I mentioned last week, if you were here in the teaching of the Catechism on the Trinity, (coughs) each person of the Trinity plays a role and has a responsibility in the salvation of each and every individual in the church, all right? And your adoption is initiated by God the Father before the creation of the world. This God who inhabited eternity before time. This God who spoke into existence all things out of nothing by his mere word. Loved you and chose you to be his adopted child. Nothing less than astonishing, I submit to you. J.I. Packer said this. Today, vast stress is laid on the thought that God is personal, but this truth is so stated as to leave the impression that God is a person of the same sort as we are, weak, inadequate, ineffective, a little pathetic. But this is not the God of the Bible. Our personal life is a finite thing. It's limited in every direction, in space, in time, in knowledge, in power. But God is not so limited. He is eternal, infinite, and almighty. He has us in his hands. We never have him in ours. Like us, he is personal, but unlike us, he is great. In all its constant stress on the reality of God's personal concern for his people and on the gentleness, tenderness, sympathy, patience, and yearning compassion that he shows towards them, the Bible never loses sight of his majesty and his unlimited dominion over all his creatures. Oh, my Father, almighty comforter. Packer suggests that we need to take more walks outside on starry nights and look up for the heavens uh, to teach us about God's greatness and our our limitations. This is an interesting story, a little minor digression here. I hope you'll allow it for me. Years ago when we were down, uh, starting down in lower Manhattan, um, we only had one service in the morning and oftentimes our sister churches would call upon me to go there and preach their evening service. 
And the Hudson Valley United uh, Reformed Church asked me to come up and preach. And as I often uh, did in earlier years, I would ask if somebody would want to come with me so that they too could become exposed to our sister churches, which are very unlike us, and they could get to know them and know the people there, and people there could get to know them. So I asked Eddie Urban, and I asked Sam Perez if they wanted to come with me. Now, if you don't know where Hudson Valley United Reformed Church is, it's all the way up the thruway, right? Keep going past exit 16, past exit 17, go all the way up. Maybe you know where that huge shopping center is all the way up there? What's the name of that shopping center? No, 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 way past that, no. Woodbury Commons, right, where all the disc outlet stores are, right? Well, that's just where you make a left turn. Then you got to go about another 45 minutes all the way out into the sticks, right? And you're out there, right? Anyway, I preach. The sun goes down. We leave. We're driving down Route 17A. All of a sudden, from the back seat, Eddie, I'm sorry he's not here now. I get a kick out of this, right? Eddie said to me, stop the car. Stop the car. Stop the car. I'm like, right, right, Eddie, what's wrong? He says, stars. <laughs> Stars. We got out. We must have stood there for 10 or 15 minutes just like this. <laughs> now, if you don't know Eddie, Eddie grew up kind of in, you know, Harlem, and Sam grew up on 98th Street, I think, kind of Spanish Harlem, right? So it was like, this was like a revelation, you know? You get outside the city and look up at the sky. Man, there's stars up there. But the point is, it's awe-inspiring, isn't it? And it, it's humbling when you realize how small and puny and tiny you are in the vast array of the universe. This author goes on. Look at the stars. The most universally awesome experience that mankind knows is to stand alone on a clear night and look at the stars. Nothing gives a greater sense of remoteness and distance. Nothing makes one feel more strongly one's own littleness and insignificance. And we who live in the space age can supplement this universal experience with our scientific knowledge of the actual factors involved. Millions of stars in number, billions of light years in distance. Our minds, real, our imaginations cannot grasp it when we try to conceive of unfathomable depths of outer space, we are left mentally numb and dizzy. But what is this to God? He created it all. And he's become your father because of Jesus Christ. That's the reality which we need to seep into our bones. Well, what are the reasons given us in the text? Well, look at verse 4 if you will. And this often gets, this is why verses, I've mentioned to you in past weeks, right? We're we're not proof texters, right? Proof texting uh, is not a valid means of uh, interpreting the Bible. Give me a proof text. Give me a proof text, all right? The Bible is not a collection of proof texts, all right? doesn't mean we shouldn't base things on the Bible. It doesn't mean we shouldn't know where things are found in the Bible. Of course you should. We want to do that. But proof text, the Bible is not a collection of proof texts. This is a letter that's written to a church, all right? And the verses were not put in for centuries after Paul wrote these words under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And what's the particular danger? Well, look at verse 4 and how it ends. Two very important words there. In love. And then you have five. And then what's the next word? He predestined us. Now, can I tell you what a, a, a one, perhaps unintended, consequence of putting that five there? 
is people think of the doctrine or the teaching of predestination as a cold doctrine. And people think of God as a predestinating God, or sometimes they reject the teaching of predestination because of a misconception about God based on predestination, that he's distant, that he's detached, that he's dispassionate, that this somewhat like a robot or a machine in eternity is making calculated decisions, who is and who isn't saved, and it's just dispassionate and it's disinterested and it's detached and it's distant. It's Nothing could be further from the truth of what Paul is seeking to convey here to you. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Predestination is intensely personal and loving, as I hope to demonstrate. So the first reason why God is your father because of Jesus Christ is because of his sovereign grace. One author writes this. He says, does our knowledge of God's gracious choice humble you and fill you with gratitude and joy? It should. It's not enough for you to be doctrinally sound. That's important, but it is not enough. You must also warm to the word of God, personally engage with this truth. For you to say amen to the doctrines of grace and not be filled with gratitude to God for his grace shown to you, means that you do not yet believe the doctrines of grace as God intended. Remember, the purpose of election, according to Ephesians, is to praise God. If you cultivate doctrinal precision, but fail to allow God's truth to rule your heart, you're a Pharisee and a religious externalist. He concludes, he says, a proud Calvinist is an oxymoron, a contradiction in terms. Hmm seems I've heard that before. But the second reason is sovereign love. Sovereign love. Look at, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons. <clears throat> Can I ask you to turn to a very well-known verse to most evangelicals. And here's another illustration and example why proof texting can be problematic. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 17. Now I know many of you, particularly those of you that are active in witnessing, point to Jeremiah 17 verse 7 as a proof text of the sinfulness of fallen men and women. Jeremiah chapter 17. And wouldn't you know it, I made a mistake here. Oh, nine. Sorry, nine. My bad. All right. Now, here's the proof text. How do we demonstrate to people that we meet that they need to be saved? Well, they need to know they're sinners. They need to know they're lost, right? How do we do that? We turn to the Bible, right? We search the scriptures. We reason from the scriptures. So we turn to Jeremiah 17, 9, which says that. Look at what it says. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And we try to impress upon people, that's by nature, that's, the, that's what your heart is like. You need a new nature, you need a new heart, you need to be born again. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came to give us new life, right? So what's wrong? Well, you forgot verse 10. 
I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. Now, what's my point? What's the second reason for God being my father because of Jesus Christ, his son? Sovereign love. Now, just think about this. The sinfulness and depravity of your heart, you will never know. You will never know. You can look in. You can look deep. No matter how deep, no matter how long you look at the sinfulness of your heart, it will only get darker. It will only get more sinful. It will drive you, if you do not look up and out, all right, to Christ who is your righteousness, and it will just make you depressed. And a lot of Christians are like that. They get stuck in part one of the Heidelberg Catechism. How do you come to know your sin and misery out of the law of God? Oh, woe is me, sinful. I'm just a worm. I'm a terrible person. Jeremiah says it. No, 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 no. That's not the point. God knows your heart. God knows every sin you've committed for every moment of every day of every month of every year of your life. And he knows every sin that you will commit for every moment of every day of every month for the entirety of your life until you die. All your sins in thought, word, and deed, he knows. He knows the depths of the depravity of your heart that you will never be able to know. And he still loved you. And he still loved you. That's sovereign love. That's not a cold, distant, dispassionate God. That's a God whose bowels are filled with compassion. It's the God who says to Israel, all day long as I hold out my hands to a stubborn and obstinate people, I would draw them with cords of compassion, but they will not come, they will not listen. It's a God who comes in the person of Jesus Christ and hangs on the cross and says, see, this is how I love you. And yet people yet mock and turn aside and could care less. This is sovereign love. I know the depths of the depravity of your heart, and I still loved you. Why? Because I love you. That's why. I chose you because I chose you for my own good pleasure. But do not doubt, and do not neglect, and do not forget My love, this almighty, omnipotent, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God in his being, his wisdom, his power, his holiness, his justice, his goodness, his truth, and his love, loves you, and you, and you, because of Christ, because of what Jesus has done. Those are the reasons. Why you can say, oh, my father, almighty comforter. Let's hasten on to some responses here. First of all, the catechism in its inimitable style, very personal, very practical, very pastoral. Says, I trust God so much that I do not doubt 
He will provide whatever I need for body and soul. He will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends upon me in this veil of tears. Do you believe that? Now you're sitting here at Sunday morning, we're in church, right? We sang a nice hymn, right? Tender love a father has, everything, I'm sure you believe that's true. We're looking at the Bible, I'm sure you believe that's true, right? Well, what about tomorrow morning? What about midweek when you're dealing with unbelieving family members? What, what about in the workplace when maybe you're ostracized or, or in school when you're marginalized because you're a Christian? What about then? Do you trust him so much that you do not doubt? You see, then is when the fatherhood of God is intended to be rubber-hits-the-road reality. Is that it's easy on Sunday morning when we're sitting here with all brothers and sisters in Christ, right? And we're singing hymns and we're hearing the Bible. It's amen. But in the rugged realities of life, when the rubber hits the road, that's where you need to call to mind. From the depths of eternity... God loved me and saved me and I can trust him and not doubt that he'll provide whatever I need for body and soul and turn to my good whatever adversity he sends upon me in this veil of tears. Look at Luke chapter 12. Look at Luke chapter 12. This is one of the things which marks the difference between a Christian and a pagan. All right? See, sitting in church isn't what necessarily makes the difference between a Christian and a pagan, right? Because pagans can come in and sit in church too, right? I'm not a Chevrolet because I go in my garage. Nobody's a Christian because they're sitting in a pew on Sunday, right? So, so that, that's not the defining characteristic. No, it's out there. It's out there. How is it seen that you're a Christian and not a pagan? Well, look at verse 30 in chapter 12. You know this teaching. What's the broad teaching? Look at the superscription before verse 20. Before verse 20. Don't be anxious. Don't worry. Don't, don't doubt. What is What does the catechism say our response should be? I trust and don't doubt. Right? What's the teaching of Jesus? Do not seek what you're to eat, what you're to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations, all the goyim, all the peoples, all the unbelievers seek after these things. And your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock. What are you worried about? What are you doubting? That's what the unbelievers do. That's what they chase after. I have a father who's almighty, who's omnipotent, who's loving, who's my comforter, right? Look at secondly, right? The catechism says, He is able to do this because he is almighty God. He desires to do this because he is a faithful father. 
Jerry Bridges has a book which I would commend to you called Trusting God. And the premise of the book is how can, why should you trust God? Now, it's, it's a couple of hundred pages, and all of it's worthwhile, all right? So I'm consolidating it down to this last paragraph in the paragraph, in, in the catechism, sorry. So kind of distilling it for you uh, sermonically here. He basically says, you need to trust God because he's almighty. He is able to do this because he is almighty God. Trust him because of who he is. He's almighty. He's in control of all things. Not a a sparrow can fall from the tree without him knowing about it. He knows the number of the hairs on your head. He's numbered all your days from before you were born. He's almighty God. He brought all things into being by the word of his power out of nothing. And he's your father. He's your father. My father is able to do this for me. Jerry Bridges says, second reason why you should always trust God is because he's loving. He's not just all-powerful, wielding his control over the universe like some maniacal dictator, or even if he's a benevolent dictator. No, 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 no. He's a loving father. He desires to do this because he is a faithful father. Do you know who God is? Do you know who your father is? Do you trust him? Don't doubt him. Don't doubt him. Meditate on these things. Think on them. Pray on them. Get them into your bloodstream. Get them into your heart. Get them into the fabric of your soul. Get them into your bones. This is, if you're a Christian, this is your father. This God is almighty. And he wields all things, even adversity, even dark providences, even sickness, for your good and for your salvation. And no matter what comes, catechism in the next question on providence, <coughs> excuse me, says, all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Can I, can, I, can I bring the rubber hits the road here, all right? Can I maybe scratch where you itch? You ever find yourself saying, why, God, why is this happening to me? Why, why, why are you letting these things happen? Why, 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 why is this such a mess? Haven't I been faithful? Haven't I done my devotions? Didn't I serve in church? Wasn't I there twice on Sunday? Why are you letting this happen to me? You ever say those things? You know anybody like that? Maybe you saw them in the mirror this morning? No, 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 no. No. Do not doubt. Do not doubt. These things come not by chance. God is not capricious. God is not whimsical. God's not surprised by something that happens to you. All things come from his fatherly hand. And the question is not why, but how, Lord, will you use this for my good and for my salvation? How will you use even this dark providence 
to make me more like Jesus Christ. You know that verse, right? Here's another illustration of why we shouldn't proof text, right? For we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Well, try to say that. We just lost a child to death. You'd be heartless and uncaring, despite its being true. That's not what they need to hear, right? But it, a verse without a context, there's nothing but a pretext. You wrench that out of its context. What's, what's the next verse, Romans eight twenty nine? For we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. For, here's why, here's the because, those he predestined, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So what is the good in verse 28 that all things work together towards? The good is not some abstract, unknown, inshallah. If God wills it, that's Islam. It's not Christianity. The good is that you be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So the question is not why, God, are you letting this happen to me? The question is how, God. You're my father. You're in complete sovereign control of every molecule in the universe. And you've loved me in Jesus Christ. How will you use this to conform me to the image of your son and make me more like him? Now the answers, I want to be just very plain with you, the answers are not always immediately clear. And you know what? Some of those answers you won't know until you get to eternity. But you know that you can trust it's true because you say, Oh, my Father, almighty comforter. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that we can trust you and not doubt no matter what comes to us in this veil of tears. And we pray that you would help us, that you would increase our faith. We believe, help our unbelief. And we ask that you would grow us and stretch us, even test us, to make us more like Jesus and to trust you more and to love you more. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.